You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. population of the United States of America is estimated to be 332 million people. 332 million people. Now, I want you to imagine with me, within the next seven years, 166 million of those people, about 50% of them, die. Within seven years. 166 million people die, a half of the population of the country, the United States of America. Well, that's exactly what took place in 1346 to 1353 in Europe. Within seven years, half of the population of Europe died. What was the cause of that death? It's called Black Death a deadly epidemic that became a pandemic that traveled from Asia to Europe. It was caused by a strain of bacteria that was spread by fleas on the backs of rats. This was not the first time an epidemic had come to society. From the earliest record of a village in China, about 5,000 years ago, to the West African Ebola epidemic that took place between 2014 and 2016, the world has seen the spread of various sicknesses and diseases that have greatly infected society. An epidemic is defined as a widespread occurrence of an infectious disease in a community at a particular time. Epidemics can be tragic as to how they affect a community. What's even more concerning is when they spread and become a pandemic, kind of moving beyond that one community. Well, today I want to speak to you about a pandemic. For it does not just affect one community like an epidemic does. It affects not just one community in one country. It affects communities around the world. But it's a problem you cannot examine under a microscope. You cannot prescribe a medication for it or take a shot for it. Nevertheless, it needs to be diagnosed and addressed for it is ruining people's lives. The pandemic that I speak of is titled Fear of Man. Fear of Man is indeed a pandemic. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 gives us the representation of this when it makes the following statement. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Well, this is a term that might be unfamiliar to many of you and therefore unknown to a lot of you as to what exactly a fear of man means. What does that term mean? Well, Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, defines fear of man as following. Fear in the biblical sense, includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people 
worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. Friends, it is this very issue that we're going to see this morning in the book of Galatians that Paul addresses. And if you've not done so, let me ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible and you don't have a copy, you're welcome to just listen. But we do want to let you know that we have free Bibles available for you. If you want to get a copy, they're at the Back Welcome Center. Galatians is the book, also known as a letter, that Paul the Apostle writes to a bunch of churches in the south area of Galatia kind of the Mediterranean area, if you will, 2,000 years ago. As you turn to Galatians chapter 1, let's just be reminded of where we have been. Two weeks ago, as we started this book together, we saw really Paul's business card. We saw that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, how he introduces himself and what it is he wants to see in their life. Then last week, we saw the reality of verses 6 to 9, someone's going to hell. As Paul repeatedly makes this statement about people being accursed. Who are these people? The ones who are teaching another gospel, to which he says there is no other gospel. And that takes us to the title of today's sermon, which is, Who's Your Master? Who's Your Master? We're going to learn how Paul introduces this topic for us what it has to do with this ministry, and what it has to do with our lives in Miami. Now let's read the first 10 verses to just get the context, because we're going to be in verse 10, but let's get a running start, if you will. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Verse 10, our text for today. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We'll stop there. Our time in the text this morning is simply one verse to teach one very important lesson. We need to recognize this because Paul really kind of puts us at the crossroads as he makes an assessment of his ministry. In order to do that, we have to then, therefore, make an assessment of our lives. Look at what he teaches here. There are really two ways you can live your life. life. Number one, you can live for the approval of others. And number two, you can live for the approval of God. You cannot do both, friends. And Paul wants to make that very clear this morning. Let's consider the first option that Paul introduces. You can live for the approval of others. Now, again, just to give you the context here, Paul is addressing the Galatians. 
young Christians in new churches in the southern part of Galatia, and he is addressing for them the reality that even as new Christians, they're being tempted to kind of go away from the gospel by really adding works to the gospel. Specifically, in the context of Galatians, he has Jewish teachers who are coming behind him saying, hey, it's okay that you put your faith in Jesus, but it's not enough. If you want to be with God, you want to be approved by God, you also need to be circumcised. And if you've not been circumcised, God won't accept you unless you've been circumcised. You're like, well, that sounds like a rather radical lesson. But that's exactly what he was dealing with. And the accusation against Paul behind his back after he had left town was, listen, Paul didn't tell you the truth. He was trying to lessen the demands to make you like him. He didn't want to tell you the, the reality of what you had to deal with. And so what we see here is the significance of this. Look at how many times in one verse Paul talks about pleasing others. Look at what he says in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man? A few words later, am I trying to please man? Again, if I were still trying to please man, three different times in this text, one verse, he keeps repeatedly addressing this issue of pleasing man, of pleasing man, of pleasing man. He's like, if I really trying to do that? Paul is very aware of the accusation. He doesn't need an education or an orientation on the problem. He is aware of it personally and theologically. Let's just stop for a second and consider theologically, biblically, if you will, how the gospel can be modified to please man. There's really two ways in which you can distort the gospel. The first way we spoke about last week, which is you can add to the gospel. We saw that last week in verses 6 through 9, we talked about the idea of adding to the gospel is this idea that faith plus works. Faith plus sacraments. Faith plus baptism. Faith plus whatever it might be, in order to do those things, that is where you can add to the gospel. Paul says it's not in a gospel. But he also says, secondly, it's not just sometimes adding to the gospel, it's actually taking away from it. Taking away from the gospel. The ways that you compromise the gospel is to take away from it. How, how would you do that? Well, this is one we can calmly see more of today at times. It's when you want to soften its teachings or its demands. Here's one way you can take away from the gospel. You can actually not teach about sin. That three-letter cuss word that we do not want to talk about, lest we sound like we're going to be judgmental and unloving. You ever wondered if the word gospel means good news, why is it so good if we've never heard any bad news? The gospel assumes you've established the conversation to tell them there's a solution to the problem. But if I've never been told there's a problem, then I don't quite understand what the solution is for. It might be a religious education. It might be kind of a moral example, but, but what's the problem? We can also take away from the gospel by removing repentance from the call to people to respond. To actually turn 
It's as if we're somehow saying to people, hey, you've got a portfolio of investment. Your life is invested in all kinds of places. I commend that. I don't want to take away from that. But let me just ask you this. You should invest also in the stock of Jesus. That way you're really well balanced. Add Jesus to the portfolio of your life. Friends, that's not how the gospel is communicated in the New Testament. Here's how the gospel is communicated. He basically says, Jesus being the he here, basically says, sell all you possess, give up all of your other portfolio, and put only in Jesus. Jump all in. Well, that, that sounds radical. Other denominations in the past became known in their attempt to kind of cower to modern-day technology and other supposed academic accomplishments to deny the historical resurrection of Jesus. Or perhaps even recasting belief as accepting, simply illustrating that, listen, you should just accept this. As if it's just mentally acknowledging, okay, okay, I'll stop arguing. I accept what you're saying is true. The gospel can be added or taken away, and as a result of that, it becomes no longer the gospel. Now, in just a moment of ministerial transparency, if I may, the problem for pleasing others is not just found with the person like yourself in the pew. The problem can be found with the preacher like myself in the pulpit. Pastors are sinners too. They need the gospel as much as you. A common way that pastors often find their identities is what I like to refer to as the three B's. Butts, buildings, and budgets. How many people are sitting there? How many facilities and what their facilities are like? And the size of their budget, which communicates how much people are giving to support their ministry. And the belief basically goes like this. The more people I have, the more facilities I have, the more of a budget I have, the more God is approving of me. He is happy with me, validating my identity. And so as a result of that, a pastor is tempted to try to please as many people as possible, lowering as many barriers to the gospel as possible, to get as many people to come as possible so we can say, look what we're doing for God. When the truth is, it's really not for God, it's for man. Kingdoms of, kingdoms of self. The problem is, this goes against some examples we see in the, in the Bible. The prophets of old, yeah, they didn't seem to be too popular. Jesus' ministry, he's like, I don't have a place to lay my head. In fact, just consider with me, turn your Bibles, keeping your finger in Galatians, go to the right to the book of Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 1. You go Galatians, you go Ephesians, you go Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Paul's in prison as he writes this letter to the, Philipp to the Philippian church. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What's going on? Paul's basically got a bunch of critics 
who are preaching the gospel but are not in jail so that they can then tell the crowd of followers, hey, God loves us more because we're not in jail and Paul is, who do you think God's more pleased with? Paul's like, I don't even care as long as Christ is being preached. The reality, friends, is that this issue about living for the approval of others is common for every person. Whether they sit in the pew or they preach from the pulpit, it's interesting to me to consider, you know who I would say would be, be the first guilty of the first fear of man? Adam. When he would rather listen to his wife, Eve, who gave him of the fruit of the tree than God, who spoke to him and told him what not to do. More concerned about another person than the God who created all people. Go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul asked this question rhetorically. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Well, it's a rhetorical question and the answer is obvious. Go back to verse 8. Look at what he says in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, verse 9. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, let me just tell you something. If you're looking at how to make friends, don't curse them. I'm just, 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 I'm just saying, just, just, just a little life tip here. You know, if you want to like befriend people and kind of grow your social influence and interact with people, what do we not recommend? We don't recommend you go around cursing people, wishing them eternal punishment for the rest of their days, for all of eternity. Why is Paul doing that then? Because Paul is not trying to be mean, judgmental, self-righteous. Paul is saying this much is on the line if you get the gospel wrong, especially for those who are teaching the gospel wrong. He's like, you think I'm worried about pleasing people? If I was worried about pleasing people, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be saying what I'm saying. I wouldn't be writing what I'm writing. That's not my motivation. Which really takes us to the second option, how you can live your life. You can live for the approval of others, or you can live for the approval of God. Look at what he says there in, back in verse 10. He's really kind of giving this contrast. Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Later on in the verse, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's life has done 180 degrees. Paul is indeed not who he used to be. In fact, look ahead a few verses. Look at verse 13 of Galatians chapter 1. Look at what he says there in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. It was popular, verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And yet we see from his wording in verse 10, that apparently was tied to being motivated to pleasing men. Verse 10, if I were still trying to please man. 
See, even seemingly his best times, his seemingly most productive times, his zealous times, he later talks about in Philippians chapter 3, all these things that he had gained, he says, I count them as now loss. Paul switched teams. He went from being a persecutor of the church to an ambassador for the church. Galatians chapter 5 verse 11 talks about how he's persecuted. Chapter 6 verse 17 talks about how he is beaten. He's like, listen, just think about this with me for a second. Do you really think I'm here to please people? Galatians, think about this with me. Just, just for a moment, use your brain. How does that make any sense? Well, it, it doesn't. Why? Because Paul gives this description he is indeed a servant of Christ. Contrast that with the false apostles. They seek to please men. They glory in the flesh. They love their own glory. In fact, they use their prosperity as a sign of God's validation of them. They run from a hatred of men and persecution. They want peace at all costs. They love their likes, their shares, their hat tips. Their followers and friends validate their direction. They are a gift, they say, to many others. They please men and they offend God. And they'll spend an eternity in hell paying the price for that. Now, I should just tell you, for those of you who are here today who are not Christians, truth in advertising is one of the things that you should really want in society well, you should definitely make sure you get that in a good Bible-preaching church. So truth and advertising, let me explain it to you like this. Do not become a Christian if you want to please people. I just want to just be clear in that respect. Do not become a Christian if you want to please people. You're wondering, should I give my life to God? Should I surrender my life to God? Should I recognize that he has a say a son who's the savior, do I need to recognize the reality that I'm not just like broken, I'm not just affected, I'm not just incomplete, I'm not just imperfect, I'm actually a rebel against a holy God who has going to rightly judge me for all of eternity, but has mercifully, graciously provided his son as a hope for my salvation, who lived perfectly like I have not, never lived perfectly, nor has any other person I've been related to or that I know by name or otherwise from a distance, and then died sacrificially on the cross to make payment for sin, that all those who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins and not have eternal punishment, but have eternal life, and then resurrected from the grave three days later, that it was done, it was finished, appearing to people just like I'm appearing to you and you're appearing to me, ascending to be at the right hand of the Father, promising to return to judge the world according to his righteousness. If you want to be popular and like my men, do not give your life to Christ. But, just so you know, truth in advertising, you will live your life to please people who can do nothing for you with the greatest problem you have in your life which is not what do other people think of me, but what does God who created me thinks of me and the only one to whom I'm accountable to. No one else can be a substitute savior. 
No one else can provide lasting assurance, identity, security that God can through Christ. What he says in verse 10 talks about being a servant of Christ. It's a translation, kind of an unfortunate English translation. It comes from this term, doulos Christu. Doulos means slave. It's a different word than servant. But a lot of American translations, English translations, use the term servant because of the sensibilities of the American historic audience to the term slave because of a country's effect of it nationally, historically. The term is using here as a slave of Christ, somebody who is understandably under the lordship of the Savior. We are under his authority. We serve him, not others. Paul's like, listen, I got one life, and I've got one Savior. I tend all my life to be for him. Now, no doubt, I'm speaking to a lot of Christians here who, in spirit of humility, can probably already identify, perhaps, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the clear teaching of the text. You're like, I feel this one. I feel this one. I know what it's like, and I'm right now even mindful that I make a lot of decisions in my life based on what other people think of me. I put on clothes so other people think of me. I drive a certain car because of people think of me. I pursued a certain uh, education, a certain place of my education. I chose a particular career because of what other people think of me. I have lived so much of my life because of what other people would think of me, I don't even know how to get out of it. Well... I just want to say, if you're a Christian, and this is still a temptation for you, you're not alone. Just think with me about the Apostle Peter, who from one minute, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, and Peter pulls out his sword, and basically by his action says, over my dead body, you're going to take Jesus, cuts off a man's ear. To hours later, not days, not months, not years, hours later, is asked, are you with Jesus? I'm not. Asked again, you with that guy that's arrested who claims to be the son of God? Not me. Asked again, I thought I saw you with some of his followers. Aren't you one of his? No, no. Not me. Within hours of seemingly giving his life for Christ, he is denying Christ because he's captivated by, he's captured by the fear of man. Can you understand why in solidarity with other Christians, this can still be a struggle for Christians today? That's why we're so thankful for what Peter says and later on in his writings in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Did you know that corn can kill you? Yeah. Corn can kill you. I'm not talking like because you're allergic to it. Some of you have a corn allergy. 
I apparently have a corn allergy. I'm living in denial of that. I'm talking about people falling into a corn silo, a storage container of corn. A few years ago, 26 people died in one year from being engulfed in corn. Accidents can occur when someone enters a bin to break up clumps of corn that form when they've gotten moist and they started to decompose and that could ruin the rest of the crop of corn. In less than 10 seconds from when you fall into the corn, a man who steps and falls into it can sink up to his chest, becoming completely immobilized. Within another 10 seconds, he'll be completely submerged and unable to breathe, essentially drowning in corn. Tragic story is told of Wyatt Whitebread and Alex Pacas. Wyatt Whitebread, age 14, had fallen into the corn and started screaming as the colonels moved past his chest, up to his chin and over his head within a matter of seconds. We're going to die, moaned Alex Pacas, age 19, who jumped in after Wyatt into the sinkhole to try to pull him out. Another friend, Will Piper, age 20, yelled, hold on, as he also rushed in, but was on the other side, help is coming soon. And yet it didn't come fast enough. Within a minute, both of these boys drowned in corn. This is what it's like to watch people fall into the pit of fearing man and living to please others. Something that seemingly looks so innocent can seemingly have such a damaging effect. No effort to get out of it will work. It keeps drawing you down more and more. Even the state of change to focus on things like self-esteem doesn't deliver because you have to look to personal accomplishments or perspectives to save you. And it's never detached from comparing yourself to others to then find your esteem. Because you're still implicitly saying, well, I'm better than them, or I'm better than I used to be. I'm still some other point of comparison. Consider with me, by way of your own personal reflection, for us to consider today how this is not just perhaps a Pauline conversation with the church 2,000 years ago, but a present temptation for you and I today in Miami. What are some possible symptoms of struggling with the fear of man? Perhaps discouragement, a lack of peace, ungratefulness, anxiety, envy, impulsive behavior, insincere behavior, fickle, insecure, people-pleasing. How about checking your social media many times, perhaps even while I'm preaching to you right now, to see who's commented on previous posts you've already made. Likes, retweets, getting notifications of all those things. Just overall discontentment. Here's something important to remind all of us who struggle with the fear of man. Wondering what other people think of us. It's not that profound, but I think it's important. As a little bit of a buoy to throw to you in the sea of drowning in the fear of man. Something to remember. People are not thinking about you nearly as much as you think they're thinking about you. Do you know why? 
because they're too busy thinking about themselves and what other people are thinking about them, which is sometimes you. So this madness of insanity that we're all so busy wondering what other people think about us, when the truth is no one thinks about us as much as we think about ourselves. Which is why Paul says, have this perspective, flipping to we think of others more important than ourselves. How are some areas that we can address this within our own heart? Possible areas. First of all, consider an incorrect view of the sovereignty of God. We don't just pray it, we actually have to believe it. God is working in your life. He gave you the body, the time, the job, the place, the house, the apartment, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the non-boyfriend, the non-girlfriend, every event you're going through. What is God doing in your life? Stop envying and thinking about others. What about incorrect view of yourself? What about a fear of others? A lack of understanding of Scripture as you're kind of caught flat-footed and realize how little you know the Bible. A lack of love for others because you're wanting others to love you. Your own idea of self-image, being made in the image of God, being declared a child of God is apparently not enough for you. You want more. You want more. God, you saved me, but I want more. That's what we say when we want to please others. Pride, others' opinions, control, or just flat-out envy. I'm jealous that you are somewhere, you have something, you have been somewhere, you know someone, you have experienced something that I have not, and it's not fair. And I envy that, and I want to please others to like me, to say, look how great Eric is. Friends, if you struggle with the fear of man, I just want to tell you, from what we see in the teaching of Scripture, you need to stop looking around you and start looking up. And if you do want to look around you, then remember Matthew 28, verse 20, when your Savior said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are two ways you can live your life. You can live for the approval of others, or you can live for the approval of God. One recommended resource I'll recommend to you is the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, a small book about a big problem that we need to address. And I have loved reading this and encouraging other people to read this as well. I'll end with this reminder from Matthew 6, verse 24. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, verse 24? He says, you cannot serve two masters. Paul says, for me, my master is Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. I want to be a servant of his. Christians, today is your opportunity to renew your vows to doing so. For those of you who are not a Christian, to give up trying to do so in the madness of pleasing others and instead give your life to Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.